In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsimus, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Did you enjoy the cold this week? It didn't feel very much like Dallas, did it? It felt like the great north somewhere. Of course, our cold paled in comparison to the cold that was felt in the northeast with the cyclone bomb. If you have friends or family up there in dialogue with them, it got really cold in the northeast. In fact, uh, Mount Washington in New Hampshire, the tallest mountain in the northeast, was expected to reach a record temperature of minus 100 degrees. I've never been in a temperature like that. I've been in temperatures where uh, if, you, if you spit on a run, it essentially would start crystallizing before it hit the ground, right? but not like minus 100 degrees. And so I thought it was a great opportunity for us to reflect together on what it's like to freeze to death. I think this is fascinating. Your laughs, I'm not sure, but you will be drawn into my wonder. So let's imagine, just for the sake of discussion, that you are headed to a ski weekend. You're joining friends who are up in a cabin in the mountains. They're laughing, enjoying dinner. There's a sauna planned for uh, the evening. And you are headed out of town that way. At 6.30, work has ended. It's a Friday evening. You stop at the Conoco station. And the old man at the gas station just shakes his head. I wouldn't go out on a night like tonight. But you're young. You will not be hindered. You're in good shape. You are excited. You're off up the mountain. And you start on the switchbacks that lead up to the cabin. It's not long, though, before you slide off the road. Your Jeep crashes into a snowbank, and you kind of crush the back bumper. You think, well, I'll just rock it back and forth and get it out of the snowbank. But you try for some time with no success. You're not going anywhere. It's not that big a deal. Your first thought is that you're going to be late for dinner. Your second thought is that you should have brought a shovel. 
You're not particularly worried about the situation that you find yourself in, even though, right, it's a minus 27 degrees. So you weigh your options, and you consult the map, and you realize that you're only five or six miles from the cabin. Well, you run six miles every morning before breakfast. Do you think, I'm going to set out and make the cabin, I'll still make dinner. In fact, you realize that if you throw your skis on, you can cut through the switchbacks rather than sticking to going back and forth. If you just head up the side of the mountain, you'll cut the distance considerably, and we'll be able to join your friends sooner. So you start climbing, and for a while it goes fairly well. You're in good shape. You're staying warm because you're climbing. But as you proceed up the mountain, you're an hour in. Your core body temperature is going to reach a peak of about 100 degrees. You can feel the sweat trickling down your back. But you realize you haven't crossed another switchback yet. And so you think, well, I better stop and consult the map. So you stop, you pull out the map, and while you're consulting the map, you accidentally pop a ski bale off of your ski, which goes flying into the snow, and you begin to search for it. You pull off a glove, you dig around in the snow, and this takes you some time. It's not easy to find. It's, you know, it's dark out. And you're digging in the snow. Eventually, after 45 minutes or so, you find it. But what has happened in the 45 minutes is that your core body temperature has started to descend uh, rather dramatically. You started, remember, at 100 degrees when you stopped, but in a matter of 17 minutes, you've already dropped back down to normal, 98.6 degrees. Your body temperature continues to drop under that. And as soon as you hit uh, 97 degrees, you start what's called pre-shivering muscle tone, which means the muscles in your neck and in your shoulders will tighten up. They're preparing to engage a shivering response, right? But for now, you're just awfully tense. You start to wonder if you've made a mistake in trying to reach the cabin on the skis uh, because your body temperature, as you're weighing your option and have taken the time to find the bale, has dropped to 95 degrees, at which point you're violently shivering. Right? Your shivering response is a massive and rather violent contraction of your muscles. Your body is making an overt effort to produce more body heat. And so you think, man, maybe this wasn't the best idea. don't want to find myself in a really dangerous place. So you think, I'm going to head back down to the car. It's all downhill. I should be able to make decent time. You think, well, if the map got me here, the map should be able to get me home. So you start to consult the map. But what... What you see even in that decision is at 95 degrees, your enzymes in your brain start to be affected by the cold temperature and don't work uh, pro properly. As a result, you don't think very clearly, and it doesn't even occur to you that you could just follow your tracks back down to your car. You're trying to plot a new course. Well, you're tight, you don't feel great, uh, but you start down the hill and you're starting to pick up speed, so you feel a little bit encouraged. I think surely I'll be back down in no time. You, you're going faster and faster. You crest over the knoll of a hill, and suddenly you see buried in the snow something. You don't know what it is, but your, your response time is now slowed down. You just you can't respond effectively. And so your skis ram into the log that's buried under the snow. You pop out of your skis and go flying. You lose a hat. You lose a glove. Snow's stuffed down your shirt. And uh, you find yourself lying there. Uh, you lie there for a moment. You catch your breath. You're saying hard things to yourself, right, as a result of the decisions that you've made. And you try to stand up and realize that your ankle is significantly injured and won't bear any weight. You also realize that the cold is biting at you intensely now and that you're losing, you know enough about winter, that you're losing 50% of your body heat just out of your head. 
So you search around and grab your hat and throw it back on, but the snow that's shoved down your shirt is starting to melt and run down your skin, and now your body temperature will start to drop precipitously. And this is what happens at 95 degrees. Your cerebral metabolic rate drops 3 to 5% for every degree below 95 that you drop. So in other words, your, your mind is just going to turn. Uh, it's almost like uh, your, your blood is thickening like crankcase oil in a cold engine. And so your brain can't actually function. At 93, you experience, 93 degrees, you experience amnesia. At 91 degrees, profound apathy. At 90 degrees, you find yourself in a stupor. By the time you get to 88 degrees, your body gives up warming itself. It stops the shivering reflex. And so you're lying there. You're, you're well advanced into panic at this point. You don't know how you're going to get anywhere. And your options are extremely limited. Plus, you can't think straight by a long shot anymore. The only grace in this is that you won't remember it. By 86, your body is circulating two-thirds less blood, and you begin to hallucinate. And so as you're lying there, <clears throat> your core body temperature continuing to drop, you think that you hear sleigh bells. You think, thank goodness, somebody's on a sleigh going nearby. It must be the Budweiser guy. And so you start to look for the Budweiser man and the Clydesdales, but you can't find them. And so you lay down in the snow and you can't figure out what's going on and you lift your head again and now, now you see the cabin. You think, this is okay. I'm finally, I've gotten here. I must have crawled farther than I intended. And so I'm headed for the cabin and you open the door and the warmth spills over you. And you crawl in and the fire's roaring and you're so excited. You lie there and catch your breath. But you realize surely that the warmth of the cabin is so intense that you are just, you are burning up. You are on fire. And so you start having to take off your clothes. And this, this occurs at 85 degrees and it's called paradoxical undressing. And biologically, the theory is that uh, you find yourself in a place, or what happens is your capillaries suddenly and extremely dilate at the surface of your skin because your body recognizes that you're about to lose consciousness. And it's a last-ditch effort to preserve consciousness. But the sensation of all that blood rushing to the skin makes you feel like you're on fire. And so you throw your clothes off. And you can read accounts of men freezing in the Himalayas or uh, often in urban settings. The initial read on a frozen victim might be that they were a victim of assault because they're lacking clothes. In reality, their flesh is on fire and they're throwing off clothes. Well, most, uh, most accounts of freezing... Uh, suggests that at the very end there's a moment of clarity. And you realize suddenly that there is no cabin. That you're right next to the log that you initially hit and you're just throwing your clothes off in the middle of the snow and you lie back down and you are suddenly overwhelmed with a desire to go to sleep. And that's just what you do. Now why an extended consideration of freezing? I find that a stunning and beautiful and startling analogy for both the story of Israel and our own hearts. That we find ourselves in a place, a world that's very dangerous as a result of sin. And when we, when we find ourselves struggling or suffering or navigating the world, we think, I can make the cabin on my own, no problem. That's the foolishness of Israel. That's the foolishness of our own hearts. And when we, when we proceed up the hill and decide, I can find my bail or I can... Uh, I don't need to follow my tracks back to the car. I can decide by the map again. Right? We see pictures of the foolishness 
that once we go down a road of sin and living our lives apart from God, we increasingly become more foolish. So you can see notions of things like, I need, you know, if you say to yourself, I need some substance to make it through the week or to make it through the day. It's an echo of this notion of the losing lucidity, losing an orientation to the world that is informed by God and His Word. And ultimately, again, if you, if you are someone who looks at something that you should not, right, in images that, that do you no good, right, it's like throwing off your clothes in the freezing cold. It's something that simply will, will devour you. And you, utter foolishness. And yet we see this certainly in the story of Israel, and we see this in our own hearts. But we also see this pattern changing dramatically as we enter the book of Acts that the story of Israel shifts to a new people of God that are constituted in a different way and behave very differently than what we've seen in the book of Amos. So we ask, what is the difference? What has occurred? And how do we continue to reflect that same kind of behavior? How do we live in a way that the new people of God were living? And uh, to do that, I want to consider the betrayal that's occurred, the betrayal in the community, and then the reconstitution of the community, and then the trust of the community. We're going to consider the betrayal, which of course is Judas's, and then we'll go from betrayal to reconstitution, and reconstitution to trust. Have you ever been betrayed? Surely, right? Most, the vast majority of adults in this room would say, yes, I've been betrayed. I've been betrayed by a spouse, by an employer, by an employee, by children, grown children, yeah. Everyone has been betrayed in various forms and fashions. And betrayal hurts. It stings. And I think we need to feel the sting, the hurt that lies in the story of Judas, one of the twelve, deciding to betray Jesus and the other apostles. We see that Judas was very much part of their community. In 17, verse 17, Peter goes out of his way to say, This Judas who is numbered among us, who is allotted a share in our ministry. We trusted him. Who is he? In verse 16, he's the guide to the ones who would betray Jesus. He's the ones who affected handing Jesus over to our enemies. And that indeed, of course, is a sting. Not only is it a sting, but it's a bit of embarrassment, is it not? A bit of humiliation. In verse 19, it says this, This story became known throughout all Jerusalem, not referring simply to the name of the field, but to to the story of Judas' betrayal. And you can imagine how this story played out in the the large groups that were opposed to Jesus' Messiah. We know as the apostles are claiming and beginning to tell a story that Jesus is the Messiah, those gathered in Jerusalem are going to reject that story and are going to take opportunity to, to tell different stories that spin it in a different direction. So you can imagine the story that would be circulating at the time. Oh, yes, you're considering that Jesus fellow. Well, did you hear the story of Judas? One of his inner circle decided that he wasn't worth following and his story was a bunch of nonsense and he handed him over to the Roman authorities, which is how he died. The Romans didn't even have to go chase him down. His own brought him to justice. Why would you follow that story? Why would you follow those people? That's a story that I'm sure played well in the hands of those who opposed the story of Jesus as Messiah and was humiliating and caused, caused the, the New Testament people of God or this, you know, the early church 
a portion of their reputation. And I actually think you see this tension played out in Scripture, and it's a better way to understand the contention that's often brought up between the stories of, of Judas's death. Now, if you're familiar with the, the New Testament to some degree, particularly if you're familiar with the story of Judas's death, you know that there are two different accounts. There's one in Matthew and there's one in Acts. And they're different. And this is something that some people love even today to say, well, this story couldn't be true because these stories are so different. In Matthew, uh, Judas will, uh, will demonstrate some degree of remorse. He returns the money that he's received to the religious leaders, and he goes and he hangs himself. He decides that as a result of what he's done, he has to die. But the other uh, account, which is the one that we're considering in the book of Acts, is, uh, tells obviously a story that doesn't demonstrate any remorse. Judas has paid uh, or has kept the money, has bought a field, and he's walking in the field. And uh, it's kind of unclear. It's hard to imagine how you trip and your bowels just gush out. Like, I don't know about you, but I haven't seen that. You know, And it seems uh, rather extreme. That would be a very unfortunate tripping if it occurred exactly in that fashion. Now, in terms, right, so there's some clash in terms of understanding the two stories, which they aren't terribly difficult to reconcile. Probably Judas took the money and then uh, returned it and bought the field. But you could say that it was still a field purchased with the money that was allotted to him. And then went and hung himself. And it makes a lot more sense if oh, after he's dead, the rope breaks and he falls down. And then he breaks open. Right? That makes sense. And they're, so they're compatible in that fashion. But I don't really think that's the interesting part of understanding the difference. The really surprising and startling uh, note between the two accounts is that Matthew includes remorse. And the account that Luke is using includes no remorse. So you get Judas actually, in some degree, feeling bad or shame or guilt or sorry for what he's done. He returns the money, and then he goes and decides to uh, commit suicide as a result. And Luke, you don't get any of that, no remorse. You get a picture of Judas kind of celebrating his money, using it to buy a field in which he um, dies. Really the most despicable of deaths, the notion of your... You know, the inside of you in the ancient world is who you are. It is the seat of your soul. And so the notion is that, um, that Judas is, is decayed inside. When he breaks open, you see what's inside, right? Because it is decayed. And so now we don't know why exactly those accounts are that different. But what I suspect is going on in the early church is the same event is being told by different people. And some people are really struggling with whether or not to forgive Judas. Some people, and maybe not even forgive is the right word, but what degree of charity do you tell his story with? Right? If you, you can either tell about actually return the money and he decided to hang himself, or you can say that Judas who compromised the story, who betrayed my Lord, he's the one who bought the field and ultimately he ended up with his, his bowels gushed out on the field. It's two different renderings of the same account, but I think even there you see the intensity of betrayal that the community must have felt in terms of processing Judas' betrayal. But as Peter leads, you know, the weight on Peter is to lead in the midst of this, and how does he construe what has occurred? Remarkably, in verse 16, he simply says, the scriptures have been fulfilled. This story, this horrible story of betrayal, the story that compromises the very beginning of the church it was God's plan. God intended this. 
which reminds us of God's sovereignty and causes us to wrestle with, you know, in the, are you in the midst of betrayal? Or in the midst of suffering? And are you willing to say, as much as the betrayal of Jesus was God's story, so the story of the betrayal I'm suffering or the suffering I'm suffering is God's story. It's the story he's writing out for me. And my role isn't necessarily to fix it or to solve it, but instead to live faithfully in the midst of it. You know, perhaps even in the midst of your suffering or even in the midst of, 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 of uh, betrayal, if you think about what is God doing in Judas' betrayal, he's affecting the most brilliant, stunning uh, victory in the cosmos that will result in resurrection and a blessing to his people. It will result in the victory over sin and death. So how can we then say that God has no purpose in our betrayals or our suffering? Perhaps God, even by offering or allowing that to happen to you, is more like the kind father who sees you, right, crashed on the side of the road in minus 27 degrees, and he knows you're going to run up to that cabin. But instead, he, he intervenes. He interrupts you in a way that causes your story to go in a different direction or for you to grow in ways that you would never would have conceived of. The bottom line is that Peter shows us a picture of, of what it means to trust in God's sovereignty in the midst of frustration, right? Don't, don't lose sight of the disappointment that exists in Acts 1. We saw just last week that the first question the apostles and disciples want to ask is, finally, Jesus, now that you're raised from the dead, that was a pretty cool trick. Are you going to overthrow Rome? That's their vision for success and victory. And Jesus says, no, and by the way, I'm leaving. And this time I'm not coming back. But I'm going to send the Spirit, but that hasn't happened yet, and it sounds kind of abstract. You really don't know what that involves yet. And you're just going to sit here and process in Jerusalem until he shows up. You're going to sit and wonder, think, process Judas' death. And Peter and the apostles, seem, you know, everything we can see in this passage, say, okay. We understand that this was something that had to be fulfilled in the Scripture. So we go forward. And what does it mean to go forward? It means to reconstitute the community. Israel as Israel. Now, when the passage goes out of its way, both in verse 15 to tell you that there are 120 persons gathered. Now, that may mean nothing to us, but at the time period, to establish a new community within Judaism, you had to have 120 persons. That's why Luke is telling you this. And further, when he says in verse 20, let another take his office, right? what Peter is saying is we need one more to take the office of Judas so that the apostles are still number 12. Now, in the first century, with the history of Israel, you'd have to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to see that Peter is leading in the reestablishment of Israel, that it's being reconstituted not to be 12 sons of an individual man, but to be 12 men who have walked faithfully with Jesus from Jesus' baptism to his crucifixion, which means... They've suffered over years. They've given up much, but they've been faithful to pick up their own cross and to follow after Christ. And Jesus essentially is saying, as Peter leads the church, this is the church upon which the new kingdom is going to be built. This is the community of God that Peter will lead to tell the story of Jesus to the entire world. It will be characterized and led by people of the cross. And so in the midst of this reconstitution of the community, moving forward in a faithful direction, we see Behind it, the trust of the community that they exhibit in the risen Christ and in God himself. Not only that the scriptures must be fulfilled, but in the midst of their disappointment and frustration, 
in the midst of the temptation, surely to, well, Jesus just deserted us. I'm going to go. Jerusalem's becoming a pretty intense place. You know, uh, Corinth sounds like a very exciting city. I'm out. And to move on, Jesus has commanded them to sit and to wait upon the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So they, they sit and they wait. And as they reconstitute Israel and a new day has dawned, uh, you might think that they would choose themselves. Right? At least in the sense, you, know, you would think, you know, you, you, see, you look at Jesus and you imagine yourself being Peter and say, well, Jesus did pretty good, but he was, you know, for who he was, he still lost one out of 12. Maybe we should decide who's going to take that place. Maybe we should go ahead and lead in that direction, but that's not what you see. Instead, you see not only a faithful obedience, but it's more than obedience to a command. It's a complete trust in the leading of God in the midst of the situation in which they find themselves. If you look at verse 24, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside. We have complete trust and confidence, God, that you will lead us in the right direction, even though what's happened in the last 75 days has been astonishingly surprising and is not going in the direction that we either expected or would like it to go, we're going to pray and we're going to wait upon you to lead us. Now, how different is that from what we've seen of the story of Israel in the book of Amos? The sermon series that we've just come off of, when they're disappointed and frustrated with God and the story isn't going in the direction that they want it to go, what do they do? They create their own temples and their own worship. Right? They live off their money and they uh, take advantage of one another and they think they're strong because their army is strong, not because their God is strong. Right? That's the story of our hearts. That's the story of the guy who thinks, I'm going to make the cabin in the freezing cold. That's the story of us in the midst of navigating our, our life and thinking, I'll handle this. I can make the cabin. Oh, I'll pray if I get into trouble. Right? But I don't need to pray at the outset. Completely different picture. This is a new Israel reconstituting and acting completely differently. So what's the difference? What's the difference between the Israel and Amos and the Israel now? What has changed? Well, astonishingly, if you were that man running up to the cabin in the woods and freezing to death, it wouldn't necessarily be the end of your story. The human body is fascinating in the way that it has the ability to shut down and to exist, deprive itself of blood and oxygen, and still survive. So we could finish out the story by saying your friends get really worried and start to look for you and find you around 6 the next morning after your very long night. Your skin is like putty, you're shirtless, lying in the snow. But they bend down and they listen to your chest and, and they think they, they can hear something. We could say that your body temperature has descended to 79.2 degrees, which is incredibly low, and your heart's beating 22, 24 times per minute. You'd be rushed to the hospital. They're going to throw a thermometer in you, and they're going to start to run warm saline to start to gradually warm up your body. This is the most dangerous part, Right? Because warming somebody up is actually when most people die after they've suffered extreme hypothermia. If you're really cold, they're also going to put two incisions in your abdomen right? and run warm fluid in that fashion as well, all in order to bring life to you, to make you not frozen but flesh again. 
What's the difference between Israel? The difference between Israel is that the blood of Christ now flows through the community that is unified to him. Their hearts that were stone have become hearts of flesh. And now they can seek the glory of God, right? being initiated by the spirit that will dwell with them, which results in a posture of faithful obedience. Because at the end of the day, even though the story has gone in a direction that they didn't expect, and even though there's absolutely frustration and disappointment, at the end of the day, Peter and the apostles can still say, Jesus died for us. And he was raised from the dead. God has vindicated him over sin and death. So why would we run in our own direction when God has pulled that off? And that's the question for you this morning. Are you the person, right, by the side of the road, you find yourself in some betrayal or some frustration, but your first response is, I can make the cabin. I'm young or I'm strong or I'm smart. I'll pray when I really get into trouble. Or are you like the new Israel? Says, given the death and resurrection of Jesus, why would I go anywhere else but on my knees to follow God's leading? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your grace this morning. And our Lord Jesus, we praise you for your faithful obedience unto death, your redemption in the cross. And we do acknowledge and ask your forgiveness for our extreme foolishness. We constantly run in our own directions. We constantly think that we can make all of our own desires happen. We constantly want a story that is different from yours. But here, let us learn from Peter. And would your spirit be upon us in such a way that we seek not our own story, but to find ourselves in your story. And before we would run up the hill, before we would go in a foolish direction, may we bend the knee. And seek your counsel and your wisdom and your leading. May we follow no one but your spirit. We ask it in Christ's name.